greatness of our God leads us to hear him as he speaks to us this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. The Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Dear God, we do give you thanks again, for you are great. And in your greatness, you have spoken to us these words. Help us to understand so that we might be new followers of you, even this day, we pray in your son's name. Amen. Please be seated if you would. You want to grab your Bibles and go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. I have two kids, therefore I've had the opportunity to train two different times people how to drive the car. Uh, some of you guys know, I hope that some of you have had that experience of helping teach somebody how to train, uh, how to drive a car. It, was, it fell a little bit more on me to do that than it did to Kelly, but obviously both of us working together helped get our kids to the spot where they could uh, drive the car. Now, as you're training somebody, as you're helping somebody learn how to drive a car, one of the things that you have to do, one of the challenges is that, that you're teaching them to multitask, and that's somewhat hard. They have to pay attention to their feet, they have to pay attention to their hands, and of course they have to know what's going on around them. They have to be in awareness of what's behind them, what's beside them, and obviously what is coming straight ahead. There's a, an awareness. They have to be on their guard consistently about everything that is around them, and that's a draining thing, especially uh, when somebody's really nervous about the first time or the first months or whatever in which they're behind a wheel. And so you, as somebody that is training them, have to constantly be encouraging them, look, you have to stay on your guard. You have to watch what's going on around you. You have to pay attention. This is, of course, exactly the guts of what Paul has been trying to tell Timothy throughout this letter. This is something that we've been looking at since we started in looking at 1 Timothy is the fact that it is a message for Hebron Church, which is part of my idea that Paul is writing this not simply to Timothy, but rather to the church as a whole of which we are a part. That Paul is writing to the church to be on their guard for the truth and for falsehood and that we would be trained in godliness. That's kind of the message of 1 Timothy and we can see this in this desire, this call, clarion call to some extent, to consistently be on your guard because of the truth and watching for falsehood. And Paul gets into this right here in verse 1 by talking about the Spirit expressly says, and this is a reminder to us again, that we understand the Scriptures to be the Word of God given to us by the Holy Spirit, that the Scriptures are the Holy Spirit's words written for us here. The Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. Some will depart from the faith. Now, my guess is that all of us know those very sad situations of people that have 
at one point been very involved in the ministries of the church, been very committed to their faith. They've been leading Bible studies. Maybe they've been an elder at the church or our children who have gone through faithfully through our ministries. And then as they get into college and beyond, they fade away or they fall away from the church. We all know those sad situations. Perhaps many of us have lived that paradigm in our own lives. Uh, it's a, a horrific thing. And here Paul is calling us to pay attention. But I do want to note this a little bit. When he says here that, they w- that, in, some, that in latter times some will depart from the faith, the word that he uses there is apostatize. It's a much more aggressive a harsher term than simply the idea of falling away. Now, the scriptures talk about the danger and warns us against falling away from the faith. And as I said, all of those experience that I, illustrations that I just used, many of us have experienced that in our own lives. What Paul is addressing here is something a little bit more aggressive, a little harder. Perhaps it's that next step that happens after just a casual falling away from the faith, uh, forgetting to uh, pay attention to your faith, to feed it, to uh, exercise that faith. But what Paul is talking about here is a much more aggressive rejection of the faith. Some have departed from the faith. They have turned their back upon it with some violence, with some rejection in, in mind. So here what Paul is talking about is somebody that at one point was engaged in the faith and now not just has fallen away, but has aggressively rejected it. Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves. And the idea here is that they have latched onto, to devote yourself is to latch onto something. They latched onto demonic teachings. Now this all sounds kind of scary and it's supposed to. Uh, The imagery here that Paul uses is not the imagery that causes us to be sad. How many of us have been sad and by uh, family members that have fallen away from the faith or fail to pursue it as aggressively as we want, or by neighbors, or by co-worshippers here, congregant members that have no longer are committed as, as passionate about their faith as they used to be. We are sad about that, and appropriately so. What Paul wants here is almost a, a response of fear. He is building up for us, not just to be sad for that, but to take that as a warning that we all need to build into our own hearts But sometimes it's hard to do that. One of the things that I did with the kids when I was teaching them to drive is I put them in the car in the garage. So we were in the garage. I had them sit in the driver's seat and grab the steering wheel and work the pedals and stuff like that, all with the car off. And it was hard for me to consistently say to them, look, you got to be aware of your circumstances. you got to be aware of what's on the left and what's behind you and what's in front of you because we were sitting in a car. We were sitting in a garage. And, you know, there wasn't much happening there as we sat in the garage. And I'm trying to say, got to be aware of everything. And they're like, Dad, nothing's happening. You know, because we're just sitting in the car or sitting in the garage. What Paul says here, though, is this idea that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. So there's a temptation for us to think that Paul is warning about something that is going to happen in the future. There will be a time in the distant future when... People will desert the faith and they will turn their backs violently upon it and it will be a sad and a fearful situation and that's coming in the future and so you've got to be aware of it. But that's not how the scripture uses the term the latter times or the later times. For Paul, the latter times 
is right now. You can tell that by the way in which he uses the verbs here. He speaks in the future tense, some will fall away, and then the whole rest of this passage is all in the present tense. This now is happening. And this is a reality of the scriptures that between the times of Christ's first coming and his second coming is this period of the latter days. We are now in the latter days. And so it's not like you're sitting in the car in the garage being warned that you have to pay attention. We are actually on the road. We are driving and we have to be aware of everything that is around us. And what Paul is warning here is not that there will be a time some distant future when people will fall away from the faith. He is saying right now it is happening that people are departing from the truth. What happens? How does this occur? They depart from the truth by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, the teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences have been seared. Now, there's a lot of words there, and you might miss the, the threefold tear that Paul is talking about. He begins by saying this. This falling away from the faith, this rejection of the faith, occurs because their consciences are sheer, seared. People's consciences are seared. Now, what are our, is our conscience? Our conscience in the scriptures so often is that part of our connection to the image of God that still exists after the fall that functions kind of like an early warning system. You guys know what this is like. The first time that you do some type of a sin or you do some type, you cross a, bit, a line or something like that, your conscience kind of rebels against it and says, hey, you know, what are you doing here? This is not something you should be pursuing. And that functions in our minds as a clarion call to say, hey, look, what we're doing is not right and we have to go back in a different direction. Paul is saying, hey, these people, their consciences have been seared. The searing here is the word in which you would use to cauterize a wound, to numb or to dull or to stop a wound. So what he has in mind here is somebody whose conscience has been alive into the sin and yet through repeated use has become duller and duller to the abuse that has taken place. My guess is that most of you can uh, appreciate this some of you probably, like me, have gone down this path yourself. Not filling out the tax forms exactly perfectly. And maybe, you know, sneaking a look at that website that you know you shouldn't. Uh, you know, the, the semi-white lie to your parents that you know, you know, if you don't tell this lie, you're just going to get into more trouble. So you lie just a little bit. And the first time you do that, th you feel nauseous. It just doesn't sit right with you. Everything is wrong. But the second time you do that, it's a little bit easier. And the next time you do that, it's a little bit easier. And after a while, your conscience has been seared. It has become numb. It has become deadened to the role and the task in which it's supposed to happen. And consequently, you become insincere as a liar. Now, the word there for insincere is hypocrisy. It's where we get the word for hypocrisy. 
And so you've got this idea of a hypocritical liar. We become deceitful, not just in our words, but also in our actions. And so we proudly say, look, you shouldn't cheat on your taxes. You shouldn't tell lies. You shouldn't look at pornography. You shouldn't do a lot of these kind of things. And you live outwardly like that's not you either, but inwardly your conscience has been seared. And you just begin to, just a little bit, cheat around the edges. And you become a hypocritical liar, deceitful in your words and deceitful in your actions. What Paul says then, that it's a small step from that to then embracing the doctrines of the devil to actually then begin promoting false teaching. Well, let's face it. The government has a lot of my money, and they get more all the time. So they don't need this little bit. You know what? I'm faithful in my marriage. It's not going to hurt me to look every once in a while. You know, telling a lie that saves me from a lot of other trouble is usually an okay thing. It can even be a good thing. We can even justify it and start teaching that it is a right way to go. And in every one of these steps leads inevitably in Paul's articulation here to ultimately a falling away and a rejection of the faith. That's the pathway that Paul plays out for us here in verse 2 and 3. Verse verse 2, that we go from devoting ourselves from having a seared conscience to the instance becoming insincere liars, to devoting ourselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. Well, what is the teaching of demons that he's so concerned about? Take a look here at verse 3. Those who forbid marriage and require abstinence from certain foods. So what Paul is saying here is that these people that go through this process ultimately are going to embrace the teachings that we shouldn't marry, and that we shouldn't eat certain foods. Now, what's going on here? There's one of two things that are happening, uh, and both of them are probably fairly at work here in some of the teachers. There's this idea, and the world has always struggled with it. Different parts of the world have dealt with this in different ways, but the world has always struggled with this slight notion that the spiritual world and my connection with the spiritual world is good. It's only my physical body that is bad. It's, if I were freed from the temptations of the physical world around me, I would be so much better off. I need to, you know, it, it's, the, it's the desires, the physical desires that I have, the desire to be married, the desire for companionship, the desire for sex. If only I could get rid of that desire, if only I could get the, rid of the desire for good foods and the temptations of wanting pleasure and stuff like that, then I would be more godly. And so to be godly, I have to get rid of some of these things that are part of the evil material world and just embrace the spiritual world that is there before me. Or the second option is that what Paul is dealing with here are people that are saying, look, if you want to be a real Christian, if you want to be real godly, if you want to be on the top tier shelf of the really powerful spiritual leaders in this world, then you have to deny yourself certain pleasures. 
You have to turn away from marriage. You have to turn away from certain foods and stuff like that because those are not things that, those are things that will distract you from the good and what God really has in store for you, which is this overwhelming spiritual state of happiness and pleasure. Okay? And Paul says, looks at those things and says, wait, that's the teaching of the devil. So now you know. Next time somebody comes up to you and says, you know, you really shouldn't get married because it'll hurt you spiritually. Or you really shouldn't eat those good foods because it'll hurt you spiritually. You now know how, you now know how to handle those situations. Because that happens to you all the time, right? All the time people are talking to you about not getting married or all the time people are talking to you about not eating certain foods and stuff like that. Nobody, nobody ever says that. So why is this passage here for us? Because this passage isn't talking about marriage. This passage isn't talking about food. This passage is connecting us to the very first temptation that ever confronted mankind. Adam and Eve in the garden where Satan says, God really didn't say you can't eat all of the fruit in this garden, did you? Is God really such a killjoy? Is God really so bad? Does God lack that fundamental concept of goodness where he wants something good for you? And Paul's response here is absolutely, that is a lie. Never should we challenge the goodness of God. Never can we challenge the goodness of God. Paul says you can't do that. Anything that undercuts the goodness of God. Now, the reason why I state it like this is that my guess is nobody will come up to you and say, look, marriage is evil and these foods are evil. But they are likely to find a way to make you question the goodness of God. God is all sovereign and he's all powerful and he does all things. We know that. We celebrate that. But sometimes the things God does are just a bummer. They're just really, really hard. And that causes us sometimes to sit there and wonder, is God really good? I mean, does he want what is good for me? Or does he just stick me in this cesspool and make it really hard for me to live? And Paul says, when those kind of thoughts creep into your life, that ultimately is the teachings of Satan himself. It is Satan that questions, that causes us to question if we even have a good God. Sure, we've got a great one. Sure, we've got a powerful one. Sure, he runs everything, and he runs it all for his glory. But does that mean that it works out for my good? Does that mean that it's good, God? And Paul says that kind of teaching, that kind of questioning happens because you have a seared conscience. You're a hypocritical liar and you are devoting yourself to demonic thoughts. The other idea here is that, you know, we have to forbid ourselves from marriage and we have to forbid ourselves, we have to keep ourselves from certain foods and certain pleasures and that kind of stuff because we're working hard to get ourselves in a spot where God will look pleasurably upon us. Sure, God might be good, but first I've got to do all these things to make sure that he is good to me. 
And this is a basic questioning of the sufficiency of our God. That we don't think that what Christ did on the cross is sufficient to pull us into his presence. Instead, we have to make ourselves something in order for God to do that. And that's a fundamental distortion of the gospel message. That is a satanic distortion of the gospel message that all of us hear consistently when we come to the scriptures. And why do I know that? Because that's Paul's solution to this problem. Look at the solution to the false teaching that comes. Anytime you you are questioning the goodness of God, anytime somebody questions the sufficiency of what Christ did on the cross, that it is finished because of Christ's work on the cross, what is our response? How do we we respond faithfully before this? Look in verse 6 and following. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus, Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith, and of the good doctrine that followed you. This, the words of faith, the good doctrine that is before us, this is the antidote to the poison of the satanic challenge that God is not good, that God is not sufficient for everything that happens in your life. Anytime that you get to the spot where you think, okay, God might take care of the big things in my world, but the everyday stuff, I've got to figure out how to handle that This communicates one solid message to us. No, our Lord is good. Our Lord is sufficient for all things. And that's why, as a body of believers here at Hebron, we need to be spending more time in the Scriptures. This is why we challenge you and encourage you to be involved in Sunday school to be involved in a Bible study, to go to a grove, to be involved in a small group where you're hearing the word of God. We don't say that because we just want your activity. We say that because we understand it to be essential to being able to enliven our consciences, to challenge the lies in our lives, and to fend off the teaching of the devil. We do that so that the more time we spend in the scriptures together as a family, the greater possibility it is that we will be convinced of the goodness of God. And this isn't something that you do once. Boy, there was a period in my time when I was involved in Bible study all the time and I learned a lot and I was involved in church and and I've got all that learning down pat and now I'm good. It never talks that way. The scripture speaks consistently of our constant engagement in the word because the temptation, the guarding ourselves from everything that is happening around us is an ongoing challenge. It's an ongoing issue. Paul ultimately wraps this up by saying this, have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. Okay, Um, the, the words don't capture or translate well into English. This is a really demeaning statement. Uh, Paul is being as, as crass as he can here, say, have nothing to do with that, the, those dung-like things. Have nothing to do with that. Rather what? Train yourself in godliness. That's one of the things that we are going to be talking about as this letter turns from a pursuit, an awareness of the truth, now to the pursuit and an awareness of godliness. 
And that is what it calls for us, for all of us who are constantly surrounded by a world that challenges the basic fundamental truths of the sufficiency of the cross of Jesus Christ and the goodness of our Lord. Let's pray together. Great Father in heaven, we uh, come before you with great hope and prayer that you will do exactly these things in our hearts, that you will enliven our conscience, that you will challenge the lies and the hypocrisy of our own lives, and that you will fend off the temptations of Satan. Lord, we recognize We hold passionately to the truth that you are a good God. Not just that you are great in terms of being all-powerful and mighty, but that you are good and that you desire that which is good. You are working for that which is good for your people. Lord, that certainly does not mean that there will not be challenges and difficult times in our lives, but it does mean that we hold in faith the goodness of our Lord that is expressed completely, totally, and sufficiently in the cross of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, who taught us to pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.